Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor and resiliency expert, helping people to think, speak, and act positively through the challenges of life. You can find out more about me in this interview at my website, which is Tom, the number two, and Tal, T-A-L-L dot com. My guest today is also my amazing friend, Tom Sutter. Tom is a multi-threat professional, uh, the serious job that pays the bills, and he also has the fun job that pays the heart. He's a published author. Uh, his book was generated the most wide-ranging uh, emotions I've ever had reading a book, and I've read like over 500. He's also an inspirational speaker. I helped him get into that. Uh, at Crum Halstead Insurance in Sycamore, Illinois, Tom is the Vice President of Sales and Business Development, which involves the recruiting, training, and development of insurance producers while still maintaining and growing his own book of insurance business. The main reason why I initially found Tom, and I have interviewed him before, is that he lost his oldest of seven children, Cal, to leukemia when he was 12 years old after a just a horrible battle. Uh, and Tom and his wife co-founded Cal's Angels, a nonprofit organization located in South, South Elgin, Illinois, that grants the wishes of children battling cancer and financially assists their families. Tom is the president of the organization, and his duties include chief fundraiser, branding, and marketing. Since 2007, Cal's Angels has raised over $2 million after expenses, allowing them to assist over 600 pediatric cancer families. And all of Tom's life experiences provided the impetus to write the book, Bitter or Better, Crushing Life's Losses into Victories, based on the principle that no matter what life throws at you, there is no reason to let anything but you and your mind control your destiny. And I mentioned a few times in that book, and that book, as I said, moved my emotions up and down and all kinds of emotions more than any fiction or nonfiction book I've ever read. Welcome to the show today, Tom. Thanks for having me on, Tom. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I didn't uh, think you were brilliant enough to uh, write that powerful a book, uh, but then I learned of the process. Uh, you sat down with someone over, I think it was a year I read, and, and you kind of had a ghostwriter, uh, but boy, he surely, surely captured your journey and your life and your story amazingly well. Yeah, that was, uh, it was actually, the the process was a two and a half year process on that book. And, you know, we sat down and uh, a friend of mine, he had told me, he finally, you know, several people had told me, you know, you need to write a book about the story, your whole life and everything you've been through, especially losing your son to cancer and then starting this awesome organization. And so I sat down with this guy, the ghostwriter, he didn't really write the book. What he did, he was a Christian counselor. And so he pulled all this information out of me, and after eight months into it, he said, wow, you're, you know, you're writing this book about being a great guy, doing good stuff for kids with cancer. He goes, but your past, he goes, you have a past, Tom, that is much more involved, and it's not really 
a great guy path that you come across as. So at that point, eight months into it, he said, you really need to bring up everything from your past, from troubled youth. Uh, I was the one who I was bullied as a child. I turned into bully to bullies, turned into a troublemaker, trouble with the law, troubled first marriage, uh, ended up going through that. Troubled parents. <laughs> troubled parents. The whole, the whole gamut. I, it ran it all. And when he laid it out that way, like I said, he was a Christian counselor, and he laid it all out that way. And I really saw uh, I said, wow, I, you're right. I have been through more than just losing the child and getting to this point. There's a lot of things right. in life. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things in life when you get to it, that whether it is the divorce or being bullied or bullying people or getting in trouble with the law or, you know, troubled parents or, you know, you name it, that you can go through those things in life. And I wanted to write this book to let people know that those things in life do not define you unless you let them define you. And you can take all that and turn it into something good. And that's really where... Yeah, and then, uh, of course, of another, oh, I don't know, another year and a half after that is how long it took to get all that back out and then write the book several times. You actually read one of the earlier versions. And like yeah. I said, when you, yeah, when you and I met in Del Mar, April, was it April 2012? Uh, 13, that, maybe, or 12? Or 13. I remember. 13. Yeah, yeah, so it was, yeah, 2013, we were already in the process. And then when you talk about public speaking, when you put me up on stage and I had no idea I was going on stage. Yeah. Yeah. The the Napoleon Hill mastermind summit, you put me up on stage in front of a bunch of professional speakers and I was not a professional. That could have been a dumb thing. Here I was, I had like, I had like 25 minutes or 20, 25 minutes to talk. And what kind of a bonehead speaker actually brings someone up on stage that uh, even the sponsor of the event had never heard of to speak when it was my 20 to 25 minutes, but my uh, my talk and what I talk about, learning from adversity and defeat and that your biggest challenges uh, can propel you and help you make you a better person, no one could have told that story better than you. And uh, when you were done... Uh, you got a bigger standing ovation than probably I would have if I did the 20, 25 minutes by myself. You just floored people, didn't you? The people were in awe. They were just standing up and cheering. Yeah, it, it was it was humbling, and it was at that point like when I went up there. That was really the first time I ever went up and spoke without notes. You know, I did all the speaking for the, the charity events and all that, because at that point we had already been doing the charity for six years. And I always had gone up with my whole page of notes, and and you're like, no, you're going up, and you have no notes. And and then I wrote down a bunch of notes just to memorize them. And I remember that you you were sitting at that table, and you looked at my notes. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, you can say that stuff, but you're not bringing them. So I'm like, okay, well, I can memorize this. And when you were when you were introducing me, you said everything I wrote down, and I go, oh no. And then you're like, come on up and talk. I remember that I talked about thinking on your feet. And then the best is the, the promoter of the event, the guy, the organizer, when he, when you called me up and if you talk to Tony Rubleski, when he goes back and he goes, I sat there and he goes, Tom calls up, Tom Cunningham calls up Tom Sutter. And I sit there and I look at the itinerary and I go, who is this guy? Does anybody know who he is? Oh my God, stop the show. Stop the show. You know, he's like, 
And he goes, but it was too late at that point. Nobody could stop the show. And we're like, all right, he's going to run with it. Let's hope this does not turn into a disaster. And, and it's funny because after, after that, we've become, now Tony's become a good friend. And I spoke at the Mastermind Summit this year. I was one of the, uh, not the keynote speaker, but one of the presenting speakers while I was actually on the ballot as a speaker this year. I said, wow, what a, what a difference that has made. That would all yeah, be exactly. And that, that could have been the last invitation to speak I ever got if you didn't do as well as you did. Yeah. He might not have talked to me again. Yeah, that could have turned out disastrous for both of us. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so glad that you changed the book. Uh, you seem like such a nice guy in person, but <laughs> in your past, uh, let's talk. You had ter- you have, your mother is a brutal alcoholic who beat you, uh, beat you, like, and treated you horribly. And uh, and then, yeah, you went from being bullied to bullying other people, sometimes to help people who were being bullied, sometimes just because you felt like pounding the snot out of somebody. And I think I really liked in the book how you kind of allude, not allude, you kind of say it, that, God can work out the challenging times of your past to make you a better mess- a person, give you a message. God uses your past, even if it's tough and, and not a great past. And you had a really tough life, even up until Cal passing away. Yeah, it was, and when you talk about faith and, and God and all, and all that. You know, I, was, I was raised in the household. I was raised I was a Catholic. One of those strict Catholics where religion was, it was beat into you. you know, hey, you're going to, this is what you're doing. <laughs> and you're, uh, you know, and you just go, oh, okay. And you don't really, you only go along with it. You don't really learn who God is. Jesus. You don't really, you just do it because you have to. Right. And, and when you get your first chance to, turn away from all that is when, you know, I went away, started to get older in high school, and then, you know, they teach you back then, it was a scientific method, and I said, oh, this is an easy way out, I'm going to believe in this scientific method deal, then I went away to college, and I totally resisted religion altogether, and you you go from there, and it's a terrible first marriage, and we didn't really do anything with church, you you had the kids baptized, because that's the thing you're supposed to do, but... You, know, you go through all that, and then your your child, when Cal was, he's the oldest of the seven, he's 13 years old, and he gets leukemia, he gets thrown into that pediatric cancer environment where you just, you, you, it's things that you witness and you experience that you've only heard about. You, you know, you have these other families, and, and I remember going in and someone said, no matter what you go through, somebody is always going to have it worse than you, and I said, I don't know how that could be. And then... Cal's one roommate, only child, 14 years old. Cal's 12 at the time. And you find out he's the only child. Well, dad now was also taking care of mom at a hospital that's 10 miles away in the city of Chicago who has breast cancer. So only child has leukemia. The mom has breast cancer. Dad loses his job and can't park at the parking lot, which only costs $2 a day because he told me he needs that $2 to eat. So you you see these things and you go, there is no God. This stuff cannot possibly happen if there is a God. And you really push that away and then Cal passed away. And, and it was a whole thing of coming back to faith and back around 
where with the Cal Angels, we and we kind of just threw this thing up there one day, and it was that story about that only child and the mom with breast cancer that my wife and I that that was our impetus for starting this. I said, you know, this stuff really happens to people because we didn't suffer financially. You know, we suffered every other way but financially, and I couldn't even imagine suffering financially through something like this. Yeah, and you, you just add that to the whole mix, making things that much worse, and so. Yeah, you. We we did that and we threw it up and, and just to a bunch of friends and family and, and neighbors and they all showed up one day in our living room in March of 2007. Thirty, no, twenty five, thirty people showed up and, and and they said, okay, we want to help. Let's do something. And we created it in our living room and it just started happening from there. Our first event, uh, you know, we planned it for three months, raised twenty seventy two seventy three thousand dollars after expenses for our very first golf outing and, and gala at night. And that's kind of when we knew we were on to something. But it was when you really started seeing these things just keep happening and there's no reason. Because, you know, we're not the brightest people in the world. And all I did was put time into it. But we were doing something. And I finally realized it was something that I really honestly believe God wanted us to be doing with our time and with, our contacts in the community, our time, and who we knew and how we knew how to do it is where I really started coming back to faith. And you go, okay, I get it now. For whatever reason, this was supposed to happen this way. And, you know, he, with the capital H, knew my wife and I could do what we're doing. We just never knew it. Right. And, like, we're talking about God and um, with my arthritis and some of the challenges I've gone through, I've yelled at God, I've cussed him out, I told him to smarten up, I, I really had some awful discussions with him, and I can't imagine that having your son pass away, Cal pass away, who was an amazing kid, how someone could ever find or come back to God and love him and trust him and believe in him, uh, after that happened, uh, yeah, I would have. If it had happened to me, I would have been cussing God and kicking him to the curb for the rest of my life. But you just happened to meet an amazing woman who picked you up. You were staring at her, but she picked you up. You didn't go ask her out, and so and she's the one who got you to church, like a real church and regular and Bible reading and the whole true faith. Uh, Talk about Stacy because you can't do what you do. You're just not that bright. You can't do what you do without <laughs> Stacy. Stacy, uh, you got like what you got now, like six kids, a blended family, and Stacy does a lot of the Cal's Angel stuff. And uh, you just wouldn't look as good without Stacy there. And so, tell people a little bit how you met and how she's been instrumental in Cal's. Uh, she was a stepmother to Cal, um, but she is extremely active with Cal's Angels and right front and center with every event. Uh, she's been a, a godsend, really, too. God did send you her to you. Yeah, you have, when you say that, it, it uh, a sequence of events that played out before Cal was even diagnosed and when I say it was supposed to happen this way I, you know, and I kind of talk about the whole progression in, in the book I talk about how God play, has a hand in your life and, and things he does you know we were I happened to be at Chuck E. Cheese one night I had my 
this is before Cal was diagnosed, so I was there with my three kids at Chuck E. Cheese one night in the suburbs of Chicago. She was there with her two, and then one of them's friend was with, so, and they were in line right behind us, and I happened to almost walk into her face-to-face, and I just remember walking away going, oh, but that's a good-looking woman, but, you know, you're at Chuck E. Cheese. You're like, oh, I can't hit on a mom at Chuck E. Cheese. That just isn't right. And, you know, we're sitting at the table, and it was one of those where we kept catching each other's eyes across the Chuck E. Cheese. She's over on the little little wheel thing that you're pedaling away and a little thing goes up and down her daughter was on it and i and i'd see her and she'd see me and so finally at, at some point she came over and i didn't see her walk over and i looked up and i happened to turn around she's standing there and she looks at me and she kind of does the whole you know is this okay and he's kind of standing here talking i'm like yeah it's okay i didn't really even know what to say to her because it just kind of i just kind of looked at her and went huh yeah, the whole dumbfounded thing. I just remember her, her first, she tells you now, her first reaction is like, oh, my gosh, he's not smart at all. He's not very intelligent. His first words out of his mouth were, huh? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and she thought she had made a mistake coming up to talk to me at that point. But she said, you know, I, I, I know you saw me checking you out, and I saw you checking me out, and I figured you're not going to come talk to me, so I'm going to come talk to you. Is this okay? And at that point, I finally gained my sense. And we talked, and it was funny. We told people we closed Chuck E. Cheese down that night. And I didn't do the whole wait three days to call her. I said, okay, there's something going on here. And this is, you know, our kids all met each other the first night. So you got that whole blended family thing out of the way the first night. They all met each other. They hung out. We all got to know each other. Called her first thing in the morning. And from there, it was just kind of one thing after another. When you said she, she brought me... She was Lutheran, and we were at the Lutheran church, and, and she brought me to the Lutheran church. I'd always never gone to any other church but Catholic, and I remember the, the pastor, he was Pastor Yonker. He's actually, I mentioned about him in the book, too, that he, the way his sermon was so intense and so deep that he spoke, it was literally a half hour. I didn't know it. I thought it was only five minutes until I looked at my watch, and I said, Wow. I go, why don't I ever feel this way? And that was kind of where I started listening and paying attention to church, but yet I was still resisting it. You know, I just wanted nothing to do with it. And But I went because <laughs> someone told me, they go, okay, you, you may not want to tell people this or put it in your book, but I did because I went to church because, you know what, you want to you wanna be with the woman. <laughs> you, you did. And I go, okay, I'll go to church with you. Even though I didn't sure. really want to, I just I kind of did it because. Yeah, the whole because yeah, thing. Yeah. And, and guys, and God can use any circumstance not... <laughs> to bring you back. God can exactly. use a woman to bring you back. When and I met my what? wife, she, when I met my wife, she said she would never go to church or get married again. Well, both things happen. So never tell you God know. what you won't do. You know, and Stacy must, uh, Stacy must love you because. Uh, and you went through Cal's horrible ordeal. You have issues with a capital I with your ex-wife and all kinds of the battles that go through with that. And you got like a pile of kids. And uh, so she is an amazing lady. Oh, she she is amazing. And I, I tell everyone, you know, she was um, more mom than mom was, and that's why, you know, we're doing this Cal's Angels thing, and, and for whatever reasons, Cal's mom does not want to be involved in it. Uh, and 
Yeah, Stacy does. She takes the lead on it. I, you know, I have the insurance job that you were talking about that pays the bills and the job that pays the hard as the cows. But she really is the the core of the cows, doing the wishes and getting to know these families and and really being there to develop a relationship with the hospitals, the doctors, social workers, uh, you know, the patients, the parents. I mean, it is when you see her doing this and you know she doesn't have to do it. There's no reason for her to have to do it. It's all because, you know, part of it is it's Cal. And, and you know, his siblings really get very, very involved with Cal's angels. And, and and part of the things they tell you is when they're very involved with it, they, you know, his brother is 19 now. But I remember, you know, a year or two ago, what we were talking about, he said, so why do you get so involved with the Cal's angels? He said, well, you know what, Dad? Because Cal's angels is Cal. And and I really think that, you know, that's how Stacy looks, that's how I look at it, that even though he's not here, there's still a piece of him that's here. Mm. Amazing insight there. And when I was reading your book, some of the parts that, well, had me crying and teary-eyed, first of all, there's some pictures of you and Cal, uh, hospital and gowns and all the there's a friggin table full of medications and then there's discussions that you should never have to have with a teenage son about where he wants his ashes sprinkled and like these are just horrible things to have to go through uh but you have to do it and that must have been brutal times all those medications i read about the time he had a 107 degree record temperature and survived and it could be a world record uh, just yeah, share with that, some of those 107.9 uh, you know, 107.9 yeah i've yeah. always been told at 108 you're dead he was, you know, I remember, well, Cal was very competitive. He was an excellent baseball player. And, you know, the Cal's Angels, and, and where it comes from, his last game he played on was the Angels. And he was, a, he was big time into baseball. He was very competitive. Uh, one of the sweetest kids, you know, I, you know, his one coach, his last coach, is always probably be like, Cal, man. He always called him Cal, man. And I just, you know, I never, you know, I always thought, well, that's just his nickname because whatever it was. And so after Cal had passed away, his coach had told me, he goes, you know why I call him Cowman? And I said, well, it's a he goes, no, because Cow was a man in a kid's body. He goes, you know, what you what we saw as coaches on the side, because um, Cow was one of the only ones I didn't coach growing up. He was in some of the more elite teams and the higher ranking teams, and those coaches are very competitive. And he he said he the way he takes control, Cow is one of the top three players on the team every year. And, but yet he will bring himself down to the number 12, 13, whatever, 14 kid. If the other ones are picking on him, Cal makes makes a point of going out of his way to make sure that that boy knows he's got Cal as a friend and Cal is, is, is make sure that everybody else knows that so that it's kind of like, the, the you know, subtly or subconsciously that they're t- he's taking the lead. And, and it, Immediately it goes, wait, they don't no longer pick on the Oh, Cal's friends with him. He must be a cool kid. Okay, he's not the greatest baseball player, but he must be a good kid. You know, and he said, he goes, Tom, it was just that kind of stuff. He never went out of his way. He never let anything get to his head about being how good he was in sports. He always played as if he was just an average kid, and he always included everybody and everything. 
And and so, you know, when you when when I was talking about being competitive is that you know, at one time he had this fever and we went down, I remember we were at the home and and fever started spiking. When it starts getting uh, closer to one on one, you gotta get down to the hospital. So we leave, he's around one on one, we get down to the hospital, now he's at one oh three, starts going up even faster, it's one oh four, one oh five. Now they're pumping him up with meds and it's it's still climbing. I just remember seeing him. Here he is on all hands and knees. He's now because his body's going through this. He starts throwing up. Well, and I thought he's throwing up blood, but it was because his gums are bleeding. I didn't know it wasn't coming from his insides. And now they're like, he's at a 107.9. I go, are you? Don't people? I mean, I don't think people die at this. And they're like, yeah, this is serious. And next thing you know, he passes out, and they finally get it to start coming back down and move us up to ICU when they start getting the temp coming back down. All I know is I fell asleep at some point and I wake up the next morning and, and, and he, I'm on the ground on a little cot down below him. All I know is I, I hear this dead little head looking over the side of the bed. He's like, dead, dead. And I look up and I look at him and go, you all right? He goes, yeah. Cause yeah, I'm totally fine. He goes, I just have to go to the bathroom. He goes, can you give me some help? <laughs> and, and, I just couldn't believe that. All I know is when the doctor comes in and Cal goes, so how high was my temperature? The doctor goes, tells him 107.9. He goes, that's had to be some kind of record, isn't it? You know, and he goes, can you check on this? So he had the doctors go check to see if that's the highest temperature they ever recorded at the hospital. And when they came back and said it was, he's like, yes. And he's like high-fiving me. I go, okay, you know what? That's really not something cool to be bragging about. But, you know, that's the kind of kid he was. And, and you know, when you're looking at all those meds, that photo in the book, I mean, that table has, what, 50, 60 different meds he was on at one time? That's some crazy stuff that you go through when you go through these things, this cancer and stem cell transplants and all that. Oh, I saw that table of, that table full, not an inch of table that you could see, full of friggin' medications. It was extremely disturbing to look at, and uh, you're talking about world records. I'm claiming to have a world record to have the world's oldest joint replacement. One of my hips is 32 or 33 years old, and just like Cal's, it's a crappy world record to hold, but at least I got the record. I think I do until somebody uh, claims it back from me. But yeah, that's a pretty lousy world record to hold. And but he was so competitive, he was excited about having this record. I think he even went to another hospital. And when he went there, he asked them, like, "Have you guys yeah. ever heard of someone living with a 107.9?" And he was a world record holder in that hospital too. Uh, it was uh, St. Jude's when he relapsed. We were at Children's Memorial here in Chicago. He relapsed, and nothing was working. And we ended up at St. Jude's doing a co you know, a co-experimental deal between St. Jude's and Children's Memorial in Chicago. And yeah, down there, he asked about it. And then we ended up, when he relapsed again, we ended up at University of Minnesota in an experimental program up there. And same thing. So what's the record for that? And then, I, know, I just remember the doc, doctor's looking at me going, is he is he serious about a 107.9? And I said, yeah, he's totally They go, wow, I don't think I've ever seen one that high before. He's like, I was like, yes. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's that's pretty crazy, kid. You know, don't don't be bragging too much about that. I mean, yes, it's it's impressive, but in a different kind of way. Talk about a discussion you had with him about. Oh, this must have been like hard when he's 
telling you where he would like his ashes, um, whatever, uh, dropped or uh, scattered after he dies. Like, man, a kid should never have to talk to his father about where he wants his ashes scattered. Yeah, that was uh, when we were, um, it was right at the end. And all I know is his mom and I were at the hospital, and and at some point in there, he called us in, and we had never told him he was dying. You know, we we knew it was coming, and he called us in, and he's laying on the bed, and I was on one side, his mom's on the other, and he's like, you know, I want, just want to let you know that I want to be cremated when I die, and, and when I'm cremated, he's like, mom. I want my ashes split in half. I split in half, and mom, with your half, I want because my my ex-wife, his mom, all he said was she's cremated. When she dies, she's cremated. She wants her ashes thrown over to Grand Canyon. He goes, I want you to save my ashes so that when you're cremated, my half goes with you over to Grand Canyon, and and dad, with your half, I want you to put some on the pitcher's mound in South Elgin, which is where his last team he pitched was the Angels in South Elgin. I want some on the pitcher's mound in South Elgin. I want some on the pitcher's mound at Cellular Field, the White Sox, home of the White Sox. I want some there. And I want some in that lake in Canada that when I was in high school, I'd gone on one of those Canadian fishing trips, a 10-day deal year or whatever it was. You go middle of the woods, no running water, no electricity. You're out in the middle of nowhere, and you're just all you do is fish all day and and I told the boys how much fun that was, Cal and his brother, and they're like, okay, I go, Cal, when you're 14, Ryan, you're 12, we're going. And obviously with him passing away at 13, we never made it. He goes, I want, when you and Ryan go, I want you to bring ashes up there and put them in that lake. And so all I can remember, I said, okay, I can do the one in South Dallas and I can do the one in Canada, but that cellular field one, I go, I don't know how I'm going to get that accomplished unless during a game, one day, I'm going to be one of those people, like crazy people that jump out of the field. <laughs> Three and start field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I go, I'm going to be one of those crazy people you see jump over a wall during a game. And, I, and that was back, I don't know if you remember back then, in 2007. Yeah, it was in, two, no, 2006. Back in 2006 when they had those anthrax scares and people mailing anthrax to people. Yeah, and I said, I can just, you know, I'm throwing ashes around, and here's all the dust going around, and the security guys are, oh, he's throwing anthrax, get him, you know, one of these deals. And, and But, you know, the White Sox themselves, we said, we got a hold of the PR people, and it ended up Jerry Reinsdorf, owner of, the, uh, owner of the White Sox, actually granted Cal's wish when he found out it was a young boy who died from cancer, is... You know, as well, a lot of people don't understand that they think Jerry Ryan's a tough businessman. He's not going to ever do it. Well, he has a soft spot, number one, for kids, and number two, for anybody with cancer, his longtime assistant, uh, the Birdo Center, is actually named after his longtime assistant who died from cancer. So he, uh, he has a big heart. He granted it. We were out there one day. Uh, it was in November 2006. And it was, I remember, it was no baseball game. Being out on the field, the, the White Sox let us out there. Yeah, us, the kids, and my wife and I and the kids and another guy to do a prayer, and they let us out in the field, and they said, spend as much time as you want, do whatever you want out here, and put Cal's ashes on the pitcher's mound, you know, hang out. We brought balloons and release, and it was just a really cool thing to be able to do 
in, in Cal's memory. So, and, but, but like you said, getting back to it, that is not a conversation you can ever possibly think of having with your kid. When your kid says, I want to be cremated and this is what I want you to do with my, most people go, oh yeah, okay, kid, whatever, that's never going to happen. But, you know, in that situation, we knew at that point that he knew it was coming. And, and that's a really hard thing uh, as a parent to, to, to come to terms with. Extremely, even hard just to read about it, let alone have to go through it. Uh, Tom, one thing I've noticed seems like in the last year, there are a ton of young people who never met Cal, never knew him, uh, that are raising money for Cal's Angels. I forget where I saw a few instances where like a school or a group of kids, and they weren't. They didn't just raise like three hundred bucks. They've been raising good money. How does that happen? You know that the, the schools. You know when we were back in school. Yeah, you know, I, I can remember. You know, you you played sports. You did your homework. You played sports. You had fun. And I remember charity work. They said, "Oh, you guys can get involved if you want." And but it was never really pushed. It was almost as if it was something that you shouldn't have to do but it's available if you want to charity work. Well, now these schools, and it started in kindergarten, which, which is awesome. They started in kindergarten about these, these charity and community programs with the kindergartners where they teach them what it is to give of yourself to, to local community and the charities and community and to give back and to help. And especially what really resonates with these kids is the, the concept of kids helping kids. And so they really, when they see the Cal's Angels, and your granny wishes for kids, especially if someone they know within their school or the school district, they heard the story of one of these kids who who got cancer and maybe got cancer and passed away or has been really sick and they see them lose their hair. I mean, they can really resonate with that and they latch on to it. And they really, the school, a couple of them last year, when you're saying they don't raise a couple hundred dollars, the one school last year raised $7,800 and another one raised $5,000. And these are grammar school kids, kindergarten through fifth grade, that rally around. And it was it was really cool to see that they came up with their own ideas. Uh, you know, the fifth grade class is the one that takes the lead. In the school, the teachers and, and, and the staff and the faculty, they say, here's the deal. You pick a charity and you decide how to, what you want to do to raise money. They went out and made their own wristbands and sold them. They had their own 5K event, their own walkathon. They had all these different things they did, and they came up with all their own ideas, and that's how they raised all that money. And when they found out, I remember I got a letter from them. They said, hey, you know, the kids would really like you to come. We know you have to work, but if you could come and thank the kids. So I did. I went, and it was, it was interesting. I walked in the gym. And here's a couple hundred kids, and, you know, I walk in, I'm the the guy, they don't know him, they don't know me, and the kids are kind of away. But then I drop something on the floor, so when I kneel down to pick it up, I now got down to their level. And, and what was really interesting, when I got down to their level, all of a sudden came around me, and they started asking questions. They're like, are you Cal's dad? I'm like, yeah, I'm Cal's dad. Like, and they started just asking these questions left and right, firing questions at me about Cal, about this and about that. And they're like, this is awesome that we got to raise this. These kids really knew what they raised the money for. And you, you listen to them, they go, so how many kids have you helped this year? And how many, how about cancer? And that, you know, they on down the line, they really got into, and they really understood what they did. 
but what the coolest thing is, remember one of the boys, he, he comes over and he's got this piece of paper and he goes, um, he goes, you know, I'm just wondering, can I get your autograph, Mr. Sutter? And I'm like, you know what? I go, that's the first time. <laughs> you know, here he is, a fifth grader. Hey, that's the first time I've ever been asked for an autograph. And he goes, really? He goes, can you put on there first autograph and then date it? Would that be, would that be okay? And <laughs> So I did. Sign a piece of paper. Next thing you know, I'm signing paper to all these kids. They long to get next one goes, hey, well, if you're putting first on his, can you put second on mine and then you put third on mine? And it was it was, it was fun. It was just to see that amount of excitement and that amount of involvement in kids that young. Because back then, I didn't know anything about doing this stuff when I was in fifth grade. I could have cared less about raising money for anybody except for going out and having fun. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Tom, one thing I noticed or, of course, saw in the book and is that, sure, you raise money. It certainly helps the kids and the families, but what's probably just as valuable is you being able to speak with them about what they're going through and they have to listen because they know you went through it right to the end, right to losing your son. And so many times when either at funerals or when people are suffering, uh, people say stupid stuff and that they just because they have to say something, but they really don't understand or have a clue or know how that person is thinking, what they're feeling, what they're going through. I think it's just as valuable for you and Stacy as the money, as to be there for people, to be able to listen to them, to be able to, I noticed in your book, a few people where you gave them advice. And it wasn't pat on the back, uh, you'll be fine advice. It's like tough advice or tough wisdom. Uh, that must be as valuable for these parents as the money that you help them with to see that, okay, Tom and Stacy survived, they're doing good things, it hasn't totally destroyed them. Uh, talk about some of those conversations and the value of having gone through that when you're talking to parents who are just like the ultimate and distraught and upset. Yeah, that's, you know, some of the things you're talking about, and we've had so many conversations, so many, what I tell people, one of the first things, that because we experienced it, I say, you know, one of the first things I say, I go, I know how you feel, I go, I wish I didn't, I wish I, I wish I had no idea how you feel right now, but I do, and since I do, I know, I know what you're saying, what you're going to say next. I know what you're thinking. Within a 99% chance, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're saying. I know what you. I know what you want to do. And and I said so. And a lot of them, when you approach it that way, which they already know, but then you tell them, I know. I know what to say. And and a lot of them have said to us, well, your advice, just because you. And I know social workers, everybody, they mean well, and and they and they love what they do and they mean well and they and it's great to have them but a lot of the families they say you know that only goes so far because most of them have not lived what I'm going they have not lived through what I'm going through you have so I want to listen to what you have to say and I'm going to listen and I'm going to and I'm going to do take your advice 
take your suggestions and I'm going to do something with it because I know that you're speaking from experience as opposed to someone I just heard this is what they should say. And, and we've really gotten that. And when you look at back at some of the interviews and videos we've done of some of the families, that's some of the first things they say. And I, in, in, in one of them, you know, a lot of people, and it was just myself too, I wanted to give up after this happened. I, did, I, wanted, I hated everybody. I hated everything. I wanted to give up. I didn't want them to go on. And, and when you really, really think about it, that is so selfish because, yeah, you're only thinking about yourself at that point. I want to give up. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go on. Now, I've had conversations with, with people, and when they say that, and I go, and when you look at them, you go, I'm going to have a hard talk with you. I go, that is so selfish. And when the first thing, most of them have that shocked look, and they go, so what do you mean? Well, yes, you're thinking about yourself. To give up, that's simple. You're going to affect your own life. You know what? Who cares? Who cares if you affect your own life? But you have a wife. You have kids. Maybe at work you have a whole team that depends on you. So if you give up, you don't sell any more product, you don't do any more jobs, you don't do Now that woman who's your right-hand gal and right there with you all of a sudden because you're not bringing a business in, she gets fired and maybe maybe she's a single mom, no other income, and her son's in college. Now her son's got to come out of college. And at some point he's now going to drop off because she has no money to pay for college. And now he, instead of going on to become an attorney or a doctor or whatever he is, he goes on to be something that's different and not what he wants to do. And now his life is a, is a complete life of frustration. And it, think about it, it traces all back to you. Now, when you look at it that way, do you understand what I'm saying? I go, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to give you some tough love to get, snap you out of it. And, boy, I'll tell you, when, when you say it that way, you know, and like I said, I, just want, I don't want them to go down the path that I did of kind of just not doing anything for a while and just wanting to give up and, and not caring. I figure, you know what, if I can give them my experience and give them that talk and maybe shorten that period where they can go back to a productive life, that's what I find in me, what I think. When I was telling you guys that we were here for different reasons, that I was here help people through those things, through all of our experiences that Stacy and I both, you know, and, and, and from the side of, you know, the child first gets diagnosed, well, we were through all this. We know what's coming next in the treatment plan, the protocol, uh, chemo, radiation, stem cell. We, we know what's coming up next, and we can help you through all of this. <laughs> Knowledge you really don't wish you ever had, but unfortunately, nope. you do. Hey, I noticed That's one exactly. thing, Tom. I noticed that uh, didn't it used to be Cal's All Star Angel Foundation, and now you've shortened it. Yeah, we well because Cal's when we called it, I mean, it's the legal name is still Cal's All-Star Angel Foundation, and that's because Cal was always on the All-Star team. The Angels, which we talked about that, but he's always on the All-Star team. And it, it's a mouthful. Cal's All-Star Angel Foundation, a mouthful. It takes a long time to run it out. People are like, can't I just write this a little shorter? And when they put a donation check, can't I just put Cal's Angels? And I'm like, sure. And I had, when we first applied for our 501c3, you know, that's one of the things is, you know, we – when we were applying for that 501c3, I talk about it in the book, too, where the attorneys we had kind of dropped us, you know, along the way. I had a friend at a law firm, and, and you know, he just kind of 
left that law firm. They left us to our own devices, and no other attorneys could help us. And I went out. I, I applied for that 501c3. And I did it myself. I just said, you know, I'm going to Google this. I'm going to find it. Applied for it. And one of the thing, and we got approved in a couple weeks, which is the first 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 submission. Couple weeks, we get approved for our 501c3, and that's another thing in that path. When I tell you that this was just supposed to be, and and the cows and angels was supposed to be, but when I filed it, the point I'm getting at is there's an AK in the application. There's an AKA section, also known as section, and I put cows and angels at some point for some reason. I just put that in our 501c3 paperwork, and and then people didn't even know about that, but they started calling us Cal's Angels because it was easier, and and so we just kind of dropped the all-star part and just call it Cal's Angels, and and it just kind of flows more. You know, originally we were going to do, the the original purpose was we were going to do a lot of baseball scholarships, you know, boys going on uh to college to do scholarships for baseball players. We're gonna assist local little league and softball and, and which we still do, but that's become a very small part, this whole granting the wishes of kids fighting cancer and financially assisting their families with anything from medical bills, car payments, mortgage payments and that's become a bigger thing. So shortening that name just made sense to go rebranded the logo because the old logo that you're thinking about, the one when you and I met, is that home plate mm-hmm. in the background. That, yeah, and so we just kind of shortened it, changed the logo to the wings and the cow's angels and put in the tagline, branding wishes, kids fighting cancer. And yeah. that's what we, yeah, so it just kind of it goes along with the mission is what we've done. We re, retooled and redid the whole thing just to kind of go along more with what who and what we think we are. Right. And you can see the hand of God in that nonprofit application because to get it approved first time in two weeks is unheard of, even if you had an amazing team of lawyers put it together. Instead, you did it yourself. And as I mentioned before, you're just not that bright. So (laughs) So to have it go through first draft, first time, two weeks is like, like, this is like unheard of, isn't it? Yeah, I had. Yeah, it it is unheard of, and people don't believe me. There was a guy we were dealing with about a year and a half ago, and we kind of hired him on as an outside consultant to help us with a few things. And I told him that, and he goes, "No way." And he goes, "Whatever." You know, he didn't believe me. So, and and he, so what he did was he went on. There's a way to find out uh, paperwork how long it took and when the submission time. And he did. He went in. And he goes, "Boy," and he goes, "I got to tell you." I really didn't believe you. I go, I know you didn't believe me when I said that. He goes, but I found out, you know, your paperwork had hit the desk of the IRS agent on a Friday, and 10 days later, it was approved, and back to you guys. He goes, I've never even heard of that before. He goes, I have no idea how you figured that out, but I'm going to tell you that your philosophy that God has a hand in this and that this is just supposed to be, he goes, you're right on, because that, that's something that doesn't happen. And now, he didn't right. say what you said, Tom. He didn't say, yeah, Tom, because you're not so bright. He was actually looking <laughs> <at you. laughs> He was just thinking it. <laughs> he was more he polite was, than I am. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was nicer. He was a little nicer guy. <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, I've never done it before, but I understand from other people who have that it's a fairly major process to file to become a non-profit. A lot of paperwork and a lot of stuff you got to file. 
um, not easy, for sure. So, like, surely the hand of God was on that. Uh, because it's just unheard of and you just did it yourself. So it's cool in your book how you talk about how you can go back over your life, the alcoholic mother, the beatings, the bully, bullying, being bullied, all those things. You could see how the hand of God was in your whole life, but only when you go back and look at it uh, after you've lived it. And it, it, it sure is, and obviously now with the work you're doing with CALS and with mostly with the the parents and the counseling and the financial part of it, uh, obviously the hand of God is on there. You're touching a ton of lives, and for most people, this would be like a full-time occupation. You don't draw any money out of CALS, and you have a... You're blessed somehow, again, God's hand in this, is that your insurance business grew while you were going through this horrible ordeal and while you're still running Cal's Angels uh, uh, events all the time, every weekend, and still somehow your insurance business grows every year throughout all that. And this is obviously the hand of God because... It's very hard to even maintain a business, let alone grow it, when you're going through some of the worst things you could possibly live through. Yeah, it was, you know, when you when you say those things, it was, you know, I always thought prior to doing the Cow's Angels, I, 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 was, I wasn't really totally selfish, but I was selfish. In a way. I thought, I always thought about, I want to do things to improve myself, improve my business, make the next sale, do this, you know, and I always kept saying I'm a, I always had that mindset, I'm going to do things and make myself better and better myself and better this. And, of course, my family was along with me for the ride. And, but when, we, you know, we went, and, and I always thought, you know, I got asked a lot to help people, charities, volunteer, and I always said, why, if I volunteer for something? I mean, that's another hour <laughs> or whatever it is. I can't sell insurance. I'm not going to do that. But if you need me to donate money, I'll tell you what. Send me the link. Yeah. Send me an email with the link. I'll put the credit card. I'll give you a hundred bucks. You know, you're gonna run the marathon. Yeah. Just shrug a marathon for Make a Wish Day. Well, give me a link. I'll give you a hundred bucks for your team. And then, you know, I remember taking that receipt and go make sure I keep this for taxes. And you know, right. showing it to God. Yeah, you know, almost showing it to God. Going, hey, just so you know, I want to make sure you saw that I gave a hundred bucks. You know, because right, that, that's, right, that's, right. this is one of my tickets into heaven. And. You go through this, and and you know, and I could have given more than a hundred bucks. You know, I know some people can't give; they can give twenty dollars, and that's a stretch. I, but the point I'm making is, I could have given more than a hundred dollars, but I didn't. I just did enough to make sure I did something. And, right, and then right. when yeah, and then when you go through this, I sat there and we started doing the cows angels, and the amount of time that we put into it. It's easily a full-time job for my wife and I. In addition to having a full-time job with six kids, we have five under the roof full-time. Uh, we have the insurance job, and we put all the time into this, so I pull time away from the insurance business to do this so I can you know, help others. And like you said, I don't take a dime for it. We pay my wife a little bit every month just to cover our expenses because we work it out of the house. We pay all the utilities out of our own pocket. We pay pretty much everything out of our own pocket, so we do enough to cover some expenses. And, but, you know, we're doing this, it's, it's takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort, but as things go, you were saying, 
the insurance business has grown every year, and I just go, wow, okay, I can take time away and not put as much into it, but yet if I focus on what needs to get done in that shorter amount of time, plus, you know, I do come in contact with a lot of people, you know, when you do this charity work. A lot of people mm-hmm. notice you, and then, so I have a bigger circle of those that I hang with, and, and, and my inner circle of people has really grown to where, you know, one of those, it was Jim Rohn who says you're the average of the five people that you hang around with the most. And that's a good, you know, that's, it really is, that, that does make a lot of sense. You know, there's a lot of people I hang around with, uh, a lot of charitable people and people that have helped me change my philosophy on life that giving back is better than taking. And, mm-hmm. of course, you always you always have to be there to take it. You need to, you know, take care of the family. But, you know, it's really... Uh, you know, provided and two years ago, we were at the point, Stacey and I were going to give it up. You know, it was taking too much time. You know, I'm sitting there sometime midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning now. I've worked the insurance job for 12 hours. I'd come home, hang out with the family, eat dinner, and then I went to work on cows. And and there was a point we were going to give it up. And because I just couldn't take it anymore. I said, I can't do this. Get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, go to bed at midnight, 1 o'clock, get up at 5. I'm so tired. I'm exhausted. And I'm not spending the quality time with the family. I'm not spending, we're going to get divorced. I'm going to lose my job. Whatever it is. I go, something's got to give, and it was going to be Cal's Angels. And, and But somebody gave me the advice, and they said, look, go talk to some of your major donors and sponsors and just talk to them and tell them your dilemma, where you're at, and, and see what they think you should do. And so one of the guys, when I told them the story, how I want to give it up because I'm just, let me just ask you this way. Cause I mean, in my head, I was already prepared. I was going to give it up. I'm going to get back to a normal life. I'm just going to sell insurance. I'm going to hang out with the kids. I'm going to have fun and use all that spare time. Maybe now I can get back to watching, you know, TV at nighttime or Monday night football, whatever it was. And you're not and missing said, anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially the bears. Right. Um, <laughs> he said, uh, he goes, okay, here, take it. Look at it this way. He goes, if you give it up, you now help zero kids. So would you rather give it up and help zero kids or would you rather hire some people instead of relying on volunteers because they're unreliable in the long run, most of them, hire one or two people to now do a lot of the stuff you're doing. And so instead of helping 100 kids, maybe you help 80 kids because now you're paying somebody. And he goes, what would you rather? I'm like, I look at him and I go, you know, that makes so much sense. I go, you almost ruined it for me because I was kind of getting excited about this. I'm going to have a lot of free time on my hand to do these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. And I go, and I don't want to have to take away from the cause, money away from the cause, because, you know, at that point we were more than 95 cents in the dollar going to the cause, and I don't want to take away from that to pay somebody. He said, I'm just telling you, zero or 80, what do you want to do? I said, Okay. And he goes, tell you what, I'll even, I'm even going to help you. I'm going to donate more every year. And he goes, I bet if you go to other donors and tell them the same scenario, that you ask for additional money to do this so that you keep it going instead of giving it up, I guarantee you're going to get more money. And we did. And we went to other people. And here we are. We have a full-time executive director. We have a bookkeeper. And we're still 90 cents on the dollar. Yes, we went down a little bit. But people stepped up a notch and they gave us this money because now we, you know, we have fully audited financials. We have, you know, the bookkeeper. We have all these people in place, and it now allows me to put all that time I was putting into accounting and legal and marketing, and, and you know, I still get on a high level involved with the marketing and branding and fundraising, but at least that accounting stuff and the legal stuff, all that has now been taken off my plate, and I can use that time 
come with the family and do this. And we still help. Last year, we actually helped 150 kids. So there you go. Wow. It, it worked out. He had some great advice for us. Amazing, amazing, and wise advice, wise advice. When Listen, Tom, when I started this call, I was tired, and I wanted to go home, and I wanted to keep it to 30 minutes, but we could go on for a long time. This is exciting, and it's amazing how the hand of God has moved in your life, and, you know, who has a hot woman come up to them and ask them out at a Chuck E. Cheese when they got their kids around? Like, come on, surely the hand of God is in that. And so everything you can see when you read the book. Now, I did it again. I did this the other day. I went through a whole interview and forgot to give out websites. But calsangels.org, right? And the book is Bitter or Better, the book? Or what is that website? Uh, yeah, Cal, it's, uh, the charity is Cal's, that's plural, C-A-L-S-A-N-G-E-L-S dot O-R-G. And the book's website is bitterorbetterbook.com. Because I always tell you, I call it the Bitter or Better is the main title of the book. And I tell you, because when something like this happens in your life, you have two choices. You can go, and, I, and I've heard someone say, oh, there's more than two choices. You know, not only bitter or better. Uh, you can just, I go, yeah, I know. There's a third choice. You can try and put bury your head in the sand, forget about it, and act like nothing happened. I go, but guess what? We've seen that. And in the long run, when that occurs, that somewhere on the road, that bitter is going to get a lot more bitter than if you just dealt with it now. And mm-hmm. so you do. You have bitter or better, really. You have two choices. And that's why when I say when I tell the book, bitter or better, and it's bitteroborbetterbook.com is where you can get uh, the book. Uh, amazing book. Uh, and as you noted when I commented online, I have read 500 to 1,000 books at least. And my emotions were going up and down. I was laughing at parts. I was crying at parts. I was thinking at parts. And every night while I was reading, when I would put it down, I would tell my wife, like, wow, this book is, like, emotionally exhausting to read. Uh, but powerful. I just couldn't put it down. And so, people, if you want to read a good book, uh, about a horrible topic, uh, mostly around the horrible topic with Cal, uh, bitter or better, get the book. Don't, don't just get it. Give it to some other people. Read it yourself. Give it to some other people. Very, very, very powerful book. No matter what you've gone through in life, whether you've lost a child or not, there's so many things that you went through that correlate with other people's lives that there's something in there for everyone. Um, you will be moved. You will be moved when you read that book. So people, bitter or better, book.com, find that book. Buy it, read it, give it to other people. You will be glad you did. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining me again today, uh, Tom. I'm always excited to see what you guys are doing. It was so exciting to see the young kids that are jumping in and raising funds for you, uh, all the cool events you're having. Just keep up the amazing work, calsangels.org, and uh, Bitter or Better book. Uh, yeah, Tom sells insurance. You can find out about that online as well. Pays his bills. Uh, what his legacy is, uh, calsangels.org or bitterorbetterbook.com. 
um, it will touch a lot of lives. Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it. You got me all excited and uh, energized after a day when I was already tired. <laughs> uh, it's, that's the goal, Tom, is to try and you know, no matter what, you know, whether it's you're tired, just just plain old tired. Just take it. And you know, we came up with a good tagline too. When I personalize books, you know, I, I assign it to somebody. My tagline: always choose better with the exclamation mark. I love that tagline. My wife came up with that. She went, "Why don't you sign your book and put?" always choose better and then sign your name. I go, wow, that is what we're always trying to do. Help people always choose better, choose the best choice, and get on and, and move on because life really, I, I, one of my favorite sayings, it is what it is. There's nothing you can do about it, so you may as well take what's happened to you and turn it into something good. So, so right. And the one point you made on that, that uh, here we go again, I'm continuing on talking about the one point you made on that in the books quite strong is that, yeah, you lost Cal, but you still have other kids, you have a wife, you still have to bring in money, earn income. And so if you just bury your head in the sand and fall apart, People lose their jobs. People have an absentee father. You have a wife who has a pretty sad uh, husband. Uh, there's just more people involved than just you. And for the people that are still here and left behind and love you, you have to go on. You have to press on and you have to look after the people remaining in your life at a time when... You really don't feel like it, but you owe it to the people you love to be there, be present, and contribute to their lives and not just fold up your tent and woe is me the rest of your life. That's right on, Tom. Amazing. Thanks so much, Tom. Have an amazing day, and uh, thank you so much for all you do. You are touching a lot of lives. Take care. You too, Tom. Thanks.